With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Spiked is free. We have no paywall. You don't have to subscribe to read our articles or listen to our podcasts. We want as many people as possible to have access to our content. And so we are determined to keep Spiked free. And we're only able to do that thanks to the generosity of our readers and our listeners. Your donations mean we can carry on doing what we're doing and provide an essential alternative voice on the big issues of the day. This is particularly important during the COVID crisis, in which Spiked has provided the space for lockdown skeptics, dissenting experts, and others to say things that have become unsayable elsewhere. So thank you to everyone who donates to Spiked. If you don't yet donate, but you would like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Even £5 a month, less than the cost of a copy of The Guardian and a cappuccino, can make a huge difference to our work. So, to help keep Spiked free and thriving, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Now, on with the show. We have a situation in which the media can be hoodwinked by small groups of people who happen to be dark-skinned and who claim that they speak for everybody. Now, bluntly speaking, there are racial attitudes and racial attitudes, and one of the ones I don't particularly like is the idea that all people of colour share the same view, actually, and it happens usually to be the one that's being advanced by a particularly liberal perspective, and that anybody who isn't of that point of view is somehow an evil traitor. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. We are still recording in lockdown, and in this latest lockdown episode, I am delighted to be joined by Trevor Phillips. Trevor is a writer, a broadcaster, and a former politician. He is director of Weber Phillips, a data analytics company that will be involved in Public Health England's inquiry into the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on certain communities. Trevor is a former president of the National Union of Students. He was chairman of the London Assembly in the early 2000s. He was later head of the Commission for Racial Equality and of its successor organisation, the Equality and Human Rights Commission. He has written and broadcast extensively on the issues of race, justice and politics, including the 2015 Channel 4 documentary, Things We Don't Say About Race That Are True. Trevor has been known to cause annoyance among the supposedly woke political set, 
Earlier this year, he was outrageously suspended from the Labour Party over allegations of Islamophobia. Just to note, this conversation was recorded before the events of the past couple of weeks involving George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. Trevor, the first thing I want to ask you about is the review of the relationship between ethnic minority communities and COVID-19, a very important issue, a very touchy issue, as you yourself have discovered. The first thing I want to ask you is just why you think a review like this is important. What do we know so far about COVID-19 and the, and the impact it has on certain communities that makes something like this quite an in, important endeavour? Well, the straight answer to the second part of your question is that we do not know enough, and that's why the review matters. The fundamental reason that we need to know about this, and bear in mind, you know, I approach this as a data scientist rather than somebody who's involved in journalism and politics, If you want to solve a problem, the most important thing, or the first thing anyway, is to be able to describe what the problem is. And at the moment, we know far too little about COVID-19 overall. One of the things that we don't know enough about is what kind of, or what category of person, I should say, is vulnerable. We are pretty sure about age categories, and we're pretty sure about gender though we're not quite sure why. But beyond that, we don't know very much about occupational risk. So, for example, the the popular view is that uh, people who work in the health service are at greater risk. Actually, the data does not tell you that. Actually, what it probably tells you is that the protocols that are used in the acute sector have suppressed the disease for everybody in that sector to the extent that we cannot actually tell if they are more at risk or not. We don't know anything very much about geography, and we absolutely don't know anything at all about ethnicity. There are enormous numbers of theories, but there is actually no data at the moment that tells us anything very much more than there probably is an elevated risk amongst some ethnic groups. We don't know if that is true for all ethnic groups. We don't know whether there are greater risks for one ethnic group rather than another. And why does this matter? Well, it matters for the same reason that right now we are shielding people who are over 70 and not, because we know that people who are over 70 have greater risk. But we don't, for example, one of my daughters is pregnant. She's not shielded because actually we don't think that has greater risk. If we were to discover that some ethnic minority group has greater risk, then it would be irresponsible not to consider the question about whether that group should be shielded. And to give you a straightforward example, our company, Weber Phillips, was founded by myself and Professor Richard Weber, who's a geodemographer, probably the most significant one in this country. Richard is 72. He is white. I am 66. I'm African-Caribbean. On the basis of one of the things that we already know is Richard should be shielded. He's male, he's over 70, and that's the official policy. What if we were to discover that my ethnicity means that my total risk is greater than Richard? Should I then be shielded? Well, answer, that's a judgment one would have to make, but you cannot make that judgment until you understand what my level of risk is. And that's why this is so important. 
That's a very useful outline. And the thing that struck me listening to you there and listening to some of the things you said about the importance of this review and this survey is the disparity between the uncertainty, as you describe it, the fact that there is a lot we still don't know about why this disease seems to have a disproportionate impact on some communities. There's a disparity between that that uncertainty and the way in which some of this this issue has been discussed in certain sections of the media or in politics. So, for example, Sadiq Khan says this is potentially an issue of injustice, which immediately raises the possibility that it's a structural problem. It's a, it's almost a conscious problem, the fact that some communities are more harshly impacted on than others. There have been numerous articles suggesting there's a racial injustice element to this. Is one of the things that worries you, and I want to dig down into some of these issues, is one of the things that worries you about contemporary discussion is this tendency to fold every issue, particularly issues that pertain to ethnic minority groups, into a pre-existing narrative about structural problems? Well, you took the words right out of my mouth, actually. I, I think that the problem is that on this, as on so many other things, some people, frankly, don't want to do the hard work of understanding what is actually happening. They have a template narrative, and they will bend all the information that they have to support that narrative. And actually, they will ignore anything that doesn't fit that narrative. And indeed, some newspapers, um, and you're going to detect some exasperation based on a conversation I've had only today with one of our leading so-called left-wing newspapers, they will actually, frankly, make up a narrative and make up some facts to fit the narrative that they want to advance. Now, on this particular thing, my, my view is that it is entirely plausible that some aspects of this are socioeconomic or they're geographical. And I'll give you two quick examples. I would lay a bet that a significant part of this issue about ethnicity disparities is down to occupational differentials. Now, this is quite a big problem for the pre-existing narrative people, for reasons I'll come back to in a second. One other thought that one might have here is that it is to do with housing patterns. Now, the problem with these ideas is twofold. First of all, we don't know very much about how this is transmitted. So the sort of presumption that's to do with overcrowding would rest on the idea that, you know, overcrowding leads to, to greater transmission. Well, Social distancing and the effect of social distancing does actually suggest that there is something in that. On the other hand, the problem that you've got is that the, the reason that speculating about ethnic minority disparities became fashionable was the deaths of some rather senior doctors who were not white. Well, if you're going to take that as a sample, one thing that it would not tell you is that poverty or overcrowding were the cause, because none of these people who are well-paid live in leafy suburbs, but probably are going to be people who suffer from those problems. The bigger issue, I think, is the occupational issue, where I think that a smart person, I'm not going to rule out the social economic causes, because I think that there might be an issue here where in which I can imagine exposure to numbers of people at small distances in itself carries greater risk. 
And where are the places where that's going to happen? Interestingly, it will happen in public transport, particularly London. It will happen in retail, particularly in big chains where cashiers are in close proximity. And the third area where we haven't talked about it at all, really, is in social care, particularly not care homes, but domiciliary care, where there are something like 140,000 people who go into the homes of older or disabled individuals every single day and wash them, look after them, care for them, and they have to perform all sorts of intimate services. And one of the things that we absolutely know about that group of workers is that they are dramatically overrepresented, disproportionately minority. Now, I think that's probably going to show up as a big issue, but we don't know. And that's why we've got to do this kind of study. But your point that people immediately leap to fit the idea into their pre-existing narrative. I mean, besides the fact that it's a bit foolish, it's dangerous. Because what it means is we don't look at the right groups of people. We don't assess the risks properly. And that means we're not protecting people properly. You know, one of the things that I feel very strongly, I'm afraid I've taken to saying this rather boringly to everybody, everybody says we'll be guided by the science. And they really stick to that, except when it comes to people of colour, at which point we start being guided by ethnic politics or liberal guilt. Okay, well, well, digging down a bit further into the politics of some of this discussion, of course, one of the remarkable situations is that as soon as it was revealed that your company would have some involvement in this (laughs) review, there was a big storm. I mean, I say a big storm. It was a loud storm among influential people, not necessarily a big storm. And they were calling into question your suitability to be involved in this kind of study and the idea that BAME communities would not trust you and, and making these kind of leaps of judgment. How did you feel when that reaction came? Have you now just come to expect that kind of reaction? And and what would your response be on this particular issue of COVID and, and the impact it has? How would you respond to those kinds of criticisms? Well, I've come to expect it from the sources where it comes from. I mean, I felt, I felt mildly insulted because uh, they haven't even really bothered to look at who I am. Actually, as it happens, listeners can't see it, but what I am showing you is a certificate of which I'm rather proud, and it says, by resolution of the Council of Imperial College, passed their meeting on 24th of November 2006, Trevor Phillips admitted to the Fellowship of the College. This is our primary science institution. I'm a fellow of Imperial College. I'm a graduate of Imperial College. That's my background. I'm a scientist. All the people who are yelling about credibility didn't even bother to check out what I actually do for a living. My company is a data science company. And the first people I talked to about this were my some of my alumni, but actually some of the people who are working on this at Imperial College. So I was a bit hacked off about that. But as it went on, if I'm honest, what I was really angry about was this. The people who claim to be speaking on behalf of ethnic minority people, I mean, I think their claim, to be honest, let's put it to its most generous, has yet to be proven by any uh, recognised method of understanding representativeness. But those people, it seems to me, are completely prepared to put the risk 
to ethnic minority individuals in this country, second to their political vendetta. And bear in mind, a lot of this is all about things which I'm supposed to have said five years ago. Mm. So actually, they've only just discovered that something I wrote five years ago is sort of terribly insulting and that groups of people from ethnic minorities up and down the country have been uh, shocked and disgusted, including all the roughly, or I guess, five or 10,000 to whom I speak at small meetings, churches, and so on every single year, none of whom has ever mentioned their disgust. And each time they invite me to come and talk to them, I don't hear them going on about this. But, you know, we have a situation in which the media can be hoodwinked, if I can be honest, by uh, small groups of people who happen to be dark-skinned and who claim that they speak for everybody. Now, bluntly speaking, you know, (laughs) there are racial attitudes and racial attitudes. And one of the ones I don't particularly like is the idea that all people of colour share the same view, actually, and it happens usually to be the one that's being advanced by a particularly liberal perspective, and that anybody who isn't of that point of view is somehow an evil traitor. It's probably best exemplified. I mean, you know, you couldn't make this up by Joe Biden saying that anybody who... He didn't say anybody voted for Trump. He said anybody who couldn't make up their mind whether to vote for him or Trump ain't black. Now, I can't think of anything more racially denigrating than Mm. the presumption that your colour makes you absolutely certain to vote this way or that. I mean, I thought we'd left all that behind. But, I mean, all of the fuss is really about about that. And, and by the way, Brendan, one of the things, as we're speaking honestly, one of the things I think, I mean, I'll be blunt about it, one, one of the things that I think some of the more liberal white folks on this end really most hate about me is that I don't have to rely on their charity. (laughs) They really loathe black people who do not actually have to rely on their charity and their patronage. You said something there which really, I think, will strike a chord with lots of listeners. You said there are racial attitudes and there are racial attitudes. And I think one of the things I'm very interested in is the new racialism, the new racial thinking. And I think you you referred there to the vendetta that some people have against you. And they're very noisy people Mm. who kick up a fuss about you quite a lot. But it strikes me that this is quite a broad phenomenon in relation to you as an individual, because I sometimes think that your journey as an individual actually tells (laughs) us a lot about where the politics of racial justice has gone. So you have a long history of arguing for, campaigning for, working on issues of racial justice and racial equality, well-established, widely celebrated for a long period of time. But at some point over the past five, six, seven years, you become a problem for people who claim to be representatives of ethnic minority groups and who claim to represent the spirit of racial justice. And I think what's actually changed is is not you. You may well have changed. You can tell us if you have. (laughs) 
But it's the understanding of racial politics is from something that was traditionally campaigned against in order to elevate people and give everyone equality of opportunity towards this much more identitarian view of fixed communities, the relationships between whom must be managed all the time by experts and representatives. And I think you find yourself at the eye of that storm, of that shift from a progressive form of anti-racist politics towards a regressive style of kind of racial identitarianism. Uh, yes, I think there is something in that. I mean, uh, let me take put one one thing to one side. Have I changed? Probably, actually. I'm a scientist by background. I've gone back to science. And the central posture of the scientist is, I've got a view. I've got an idea. I've got a theory. You know what? It's going to be wrong. I know it's going to be wrong. The question for today is, is it good enough to deal with the problem that we confront? But I absolutely know at some point, somebody's going to come up with data or a new insight that will prove me wrong. That's the point of science. And actually, sometimes you are yourself the person who comes up with that data and that information that says, you know what, it's not what we thought it was. I mean, 20 years ago, we had a view about educational success, which essentially said that minority failure was down to teacher racism, sometimes subtle, sometimes explicit. I've never doubted, and I still don't doubt that that is a part of it, but actually what we discovered by better data capture and more granular analysis is that that could not explain the fact that some people of color actually did better than average while other people of color did worse than average. So we had to change our minds about what was going on, not because we suddenly had some different idea, but because we had better information. And instead of saying this information basically torpedoes our theory, which is, I think, what people who do ethnic politics really want, like to do, the smart and the valuable thing for minorities is to say, oh, okay, this torpedoes our old theory. So how can we explain it? And therefore, how can we help those who really need help? I changed my view about mm. that quite dramatically. So uh, in practice, that meant, interestingly, that actually we did some things that are more radical. So Tony Sewell, Dr. Tony Sewell, who runs a great program called Generating Genius, and he wrote to me and to help him to launch it, we said we're going to focus on African-Caribbean boys. Now, before that, we would have said, we're going to focus on anybody who's not white. But actually, the data showed us that was a place that we could make a difference. So the issue about whether I changed my mind, I freely admit I changed my mind all the time because mm -hmm. I know that what I currently believe can always be improved. Mm -hmm. Most of the people who are in politics go the opposite way. They say, actually, data doesn't fit my theory. Get me some new data. Now, the question about what people think about me, it, which is the, the burden of your point, other people can probably talk about this more authoritatively, and you yourself have done so in at least one piece. But what I will say about it is this. 
One of the things I've discovered, I spent quite quite a lot of time in the United States where things are different. One of the things that uh, the British political elite really, really dislikes is a person of colour that they can't patronise. They really hate it. They really hate it. They really, really, in the end, like to approach a person of colour as somebody who is a supplicant. And the few of us who are lucky enough not to have to be in that position of course are going to get it in the neck because we don't go about appealing for sympathy for ourselves. I don't have to tell everybody the last time I had a racist insult or a death threat. I mean, I can do that every single bloody day because it happens every single bloody day. But why do I need it? I don't need anybody except the police where it's necessary to help me deal with that. What I really want to attract public attention to is how we can do better for people of colour who should be doing better than they are. So, for example, in the work that I do in recruitment, in our biggest and most powerful companies and public bodies, there are people of colour, of talent, who are essentially being passed over. I think my job and the useful thing I can do is to get in and put those people in the right seats. So, you know, our company, we place hundreds of people every year in top jobs, Half of them roughly now are women, and about last year between 20-25% are people of colour. Now, that's a useful thing to do. Instead of going about telling people, why do you feel sorry for me? Mm-hmm. What I'm doing is finding jobs where people of colour can exercise decision-making powers. They can model good behaviour. They can persuade people that people who look like me aren't necessarily idiots or people who are just good at singing and, and dancing and running and jumping, but that we can actually run things. That's a useful thing to do. But if that's what your focus is, it steps right outside the narrative of supplicant. And I know that there are people who just hate that because what they really want, what they really want people of colour to be is useful stooges and pawns in the battle against capitalism or neoliberalism or whatever it is. So our job is to be downtrodden, oppressed, rebellious, and the reason for revolution or the reason for change. And the minute we stop, we stop behaving like that and saying, no, 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 you know what? We're quite good at stuff and we want to be in charge of stuff as well then we somehow suddenly we're going to break that situation and we become not very useful. That's why they hate it so much. I want to ask you where you think that narrative of supplicant comes from in its modern form. Obviously, there is a long history of, of mm. various forms of this politics. But, but in its modern, modern form, I wonder, would you say that it is a function of multiculturalism? Because one of the things that you are most criticized for in Mm. terms of the old articles that people dig out and are suddenly very shocked by. One of the things is is some of your criticisms of multiculturalism, particularly as it developed in the Blair years. You described it as a racket. And (laughs) one of your key arguments, or one of the arguments that I'm sure had an impact on a great number of people, was the way in which multiculturalism created this layer of community representatives who became somehow, by some form of magic, the spokespeople for a vast section of society, a very diverse, intellectually diverse sections of society. And it strikes me that the problem with people like you, 
who step outside of that narrative is that you implicitly call into question the role that these people presume that they are playing. So on the one hand, it's because I think many of these people have a pretty demeaning view of ethnic minority community members who don't do what they're supposed to do. But also I think if, I think it's wrapped up in the structure of multiculturalism, which demands that ethnic minority communities play the victim role, the supplicant role. I'm going to choose my words really carefully here, Brendan, because I know exactly how what I'm about to say can be interpreted. What I would say in response to your question is this, that a particular form of multiculturalism, which is what came to hold sway in this country, is actually an emanation of racism, actually. Now, when we first talked about multiculturalism, we were really talking about the politics of recognition. What we were saying was there are people who, you know, who are not white, who don't come from a particular tradition, and there's nothing wrong with that tradition, but it's not one that we share. I mean, I, I can't go and show you the graves of my great, great grandparents in an English village because Gray's elegy is not my history, but I am part of today's Britain and my multiculturalism simply said, I have a different formation. I have a different history and that should be honored in the same way as anyone else's. So I'm cool with that. Where I think things went really wrong was where, as I say, multiculturalism essentially got taken over by people, most of whom were white, who wanted to deploy ethnic minority groups as part of their struggle. So, you know, ethnic minority groups become part of Labour Party factionalism. You know, you can get this lot or that lot to support you at a local party meeting, but you can only do that because you've got agents, as it were, inside each minority community, and they will bring their people, and those their people will vote uh, because they've only heard one side of the story. They're not stupid, by the way, but closed communities aren't necessarily hearing every part of the story. So my objection to the particular form of multiculturalism that started to hold sway was not that I thought diversity was a bad thing, exactly the contrary. It was that actually the form of multiculturalism that was being practiced was essentially one that ignored and suppressed the potential of people of color that simply used us as stage armies. And in order to make that happen, you know, the people who were decision makers would create leaders. And even today you see it. You know, if the government's got to appoint a bunch of people to a board, they will rightly say, we need to make sure there's diversity, there's women, there's people from minorities and so on. And when it comes to women, let's say, let's say it's to do with, um, I don't know, retail or food policy, they will look for the best retailers who happen to be women. When it comes to ethnic minorities, they will go to some group which claims to be representative of minorities, may have no idea at all about the retail business, but they'll say, find us somebody a brown face we can put at the table. Yeah. My, my objection, and I think the reason I'm constantly in conflict with people over this, is that I want us to be treated in the same way, with the same respect, 
the same level of scrutiny, by the way, as everybody else. I want our talents to be recognised for what we do, not what we look like. And I know that there are people who really hate that because actually they like that race-driven form of multiculturalism. Yeah. I mean, I haven't thought about it in quite this way before, but I, I would say if I'm thinking about employment and, you know, if you were being pretentious about it, you'd say, I think there's a race-driven form of multiculturalism and there's a capability-driven form of multiculturalism. If you happen to believe, as I do, that people of colour have all sorts of great capabilities and you have confidence that if people give us the chance, we will do well, then you'll believe in capability multiculturalism. If you happen to think that basically black people are a bit dumb and actually they'll only get a chance to do things if you give them the opportunity because of their colour, then you'll go for the race-based multiculturalism. And I'll give you a very, I'll give you a simple example, if you don't mind. Some years ago, I was judging a journalism competition, student journalism competition. Uh, It won't take you much to guess which media organisation supported this. And I was inevitably judging the Diversity Award with a couple of other people. And we gave the award to a student from Leeds who had written some really good pieces about the far right. And somebody senior in that media organisation came across and said, who who, have you, who are you giving this to? And we said, oh, we're giving it to this guy. And she said, but, but you can't do that. And we said, why? And she said, well, if you give the diversity award to this guy who happens to be white, then no black person's going to get an award. Now, that's the mentality. You mentioned there, as you were talking, you mentioned the factionalism in the Labour Party or the, or the way in which the, the new racialism could lend itself to factionalism in the Labour Party. So, and I want to ask you about the Labour Party because they have, in my view, and many people's <laughs> view, they have treated you very badly. And so uh, the understanding that's out there is that you were excommunicated, as you described it in one of the pieces you wrote, <laughs> for heresy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the heresy in this case was that you have dared in the past, so we understand, I know you can't go into great detail about this, that, but you have dared in the past to criticise aspects of Islam and certain practices within m- Muslim communities. I just wondered if you could say a bit more about that experience and and more broadly what you think it tells us about the capture of the Labour Party by some of the problematic politics you've just been describing? Well, let me try and uh, address it in this way. Number one, I want to be clear. I have never actually criticised Islam. And I know some of my critics hate me saying this, but they just have to suck it up, frankly. (laughs) I come from a background where until my ancestors were hiked out of West Africa and taken to Barbados and British Guyana, where we were probably owned by the Gladstone family. Until that point, we had a thousand years of Mandinka and Fulani Muslims. We were Muslims. So, you know, I just find it a little bit racist, to be honest, Mm. the way that people bang on about what right have I got to say anything about Muslims. You know, my family were Muslims 
before most Muslims in this country's ancestors became Muslims. So, you know, frankly, they, they just need to get their head straight about that. And I n never have a criticism of Islam. One of the things that I've said, I've been accused, supposedly, of saying is Muslims are different. Well, yeah, of course they're different. That's why they call themselves Muslims. I am a Christian. I am different to people who are not Christians because I believe certain things. And by the way, one of the reasons I raised the issue about Muslims being different was that, for example, you know, most Muslims, I think, have an attitude to alcohol, which, frankly, this country could well do with paying more attention to. If more of us were like most Muslims in relation to alcohol, we would have fewer assaults on a Friday and Saturday night. We would have fewer people in hospitals. We would have fewer assaults on women. We would have less domestic violence. So yes, Muslims are different. And in some respects, that's a fantastic thing that this country could learn from. On the issue of the, the way that I've been dealt with by the Labour Party, I think the problem for me here is that as far as I can make out, the party apparatus literally paid no attention whatsoever to anything I had ever said. I mean, some of it was just crazy. So I've written a pamphlet about the last 50 years of race relations in this country. I think it's reasonable with my background that I should be able to put pen to paper and write 10,000 words on that. What is the accusation? The accusation is that I quoted Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. I mean, how is it possible mm. to write about <laughs> the history of race relations since the war in this country and not mention that speech? And by the way, what I say is that it ended his career. Some people say it's a, it's an example of, of great rhetoric. Uh, I can't remember exactly what I said, but essentially I, I, I think I'd say this is a demonstration of where rhetoric can get you into the worst possible place and get you to say things that are just completely unconscionable. Now, the party, I don't think, has paid much attention to that. And the reason that um, I think it, it responds to the question you've just asked me is that the disciplinary action against me, as far as I can make out, and by the way, I do not know who made the complaint. They don't tell you that. I mean, it will be interesting to see what our new leader, who is a human rights lawyer, says about that and how that is reconciled with the Human Rights Act, which I think, frankly, having been the person who has to enforce it, I think requires, if you've been charged, it requires uh, the law to tell you or the authorities to tell you who you've been accused by. Uh, but apparently that doesn't apply to the Labour Party. I think the problem here is that the Labour Party was driven by noise, by cowardice, by not wanting to appear to ignore a noisy lobby. And what would be really disreputable would be if we were to discover, I do not know that this is the case, but it would be terminally disreputable, I'd use that phrase, if we were to discover that the judgment that was made to, as it were, prosecute and persecute me was done because somebody thought, actually, we depend on, quote unquote, the Muslim vote for 
a large number of our constituencies and it's perfectly okay to sacrifice somebody, even though we know it's not right, in order to protect our reputation, supposedly, with that group. People often ask me, you know, well, why do you want to stay in a party that doesn't want you? And the answer is that, you know, you don't walk away from a fight. For 30 years, I believed in what Labour is there for. I still believe it can do something important for our country. But if I were to come to believe that the Labour Party is the kind of organisation that will throw its own to the wolves purely out of cowardice and electoral advantage, then I would seriously start to wonder, is this a place for me? Because I can never sign up to that. One more question, and it sure. follows on nicely from what you've just said there. You, you used the word cowardice there a couple of times, and I think that's a very good word to describe a lot of the contemporary culture around issues to do with race, issues to do with inequality and so on. There's a, a cowardice to raise one's head above the parapet, to say things you're supposedly not meant to say. You and others have talked about how the reluctance to grapple with potentially racial issues or community conflict issues meant that a, a blind eye was turned to things like the grooming gang. So it has it has a, a serious consequence on social peace and on society itself. So I just wonder how how would you try to convince some of these people that a bit more bravery, a bit more intellectual bravery, a bit more openness about the complexity of the problems that we face should be valorized over this kind of demented <laughs> shoving of everything into a pre-existing script? Practical answer. Get out of London, get out of the Guardian headquarters, get out of the universities, talk to people in towns like Preston or Harrogate or Swindon or Peterborough. Talk to people who don't know what a microaggression is. Mm. Talk to people who literally don't really know what social media is about except for Facebooking with their auntie. Because the problem that we've been discussing is not a problem in Britain. It's a problem of Britain's political and media elite. It is a disease of our elite. Now, one of the underlying issues, which I do not know how to solve, is that that political and media elite has an incredible grip on voice, what people call voice, and to some extent what we would call in the, the digital and AI world, mindshare. That is to say, if you're going to read public documents, newspapers, telly and so on, that small class, which lives in London, is what Vernon Bogdan called exam-passing classes and so on, has an extraordinary grip uh, in a way that is not true even in the United States, where things are a little bit more dispersed, or in, let's say, Germany, where politically things are more dispersed. It has an incredible grip on public conversation. And one of the difficulties that we have is that that class is constantly talking to each other. I don't think that these are evil people. I think they literally believe that the people that they talk to are representative of the country as a whole. And they're always surprised and baffled when they go and talk to some. I mean, you know, I, I was president of a, of a retailer for four years and, you know, three quarters of our 
people work in warehouses, shops, and so on. They're low paid. So I'm spending every week talking to people who basically don't care about any of this kind of stuff. And who, by the way, they live in it and they, you know, they know their neighbors have different habits to them, but they're not kind of condemnatory. They're not absolutist. They want to negotiate. They want to navigate. They want their children to get on with other people. But sometimes they say, well, look, you know, the attitude of that group is not what we would do, but we need to find a way through it. So, for example, to take a progressive proposition, a community where over half the people believe that homosexuality should be illegal and the children shouldn't be taught by gay teachers is quite different to what most people in this country believe today. Mm. And we have to find ways of navigating that, which doesn't involve people shouting at you names at each other of the kind that we've seen. The, the bigger issue for this political elite, actually, and which is where I think the real danger exists for people in that class, of which I'm one, is that the people are ahead of us. I mean, you know, when I was working as president of John Lewis, one of the things that was absolutely clear is that we can have all these arguments, but almost everybody, down to the assistant fish counter guy, knew and knows that the big issue that faces this country is the speed and change of technology. We're having all these arguments about this, that, and the other. But when you go and talk to those people, what they're saying is, you do realize that in three years, we're not going to have cashiers. What work will we do? How will we organize things? They're not afraid of it, but they want the clever classes to pay attention to these things that actually matter. They were talking about China to me 18 months ago. The clever people are only just now catching up. <laughs> so the most important thing, I think, the answer to your question is that I can't persuade these people because actually what they really want, they really love the idea of having an argument be with me because that's, that's their happy time because we can just tweet it out between us. I think the real task here is to get them to listen to what people who are not in our class are concerned about. A second thing that we could do, which is a very practical thing, is our political and media classes could learn to do sums. If you read all of our newspapers, if you read the speeches of politicians, they are almost completely devoid of any scientific understanding of any numeracy. So we are constantly making mistakes. We didn't read the signals on Brexit. The clever people did not read the signals on Boris Johnson. They are not now reading the signals about quote-unquote political correctness. And we keep getting it wrong and then going, why didn't anybody tell us? Well, because you can't read, you twats. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Learn Phillips, to read. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.